Hi everyone, my name is Anthony Negron, host and producer of Spark Chat, a podcast dedicated to capturing and sharing the personal and professional journeys of some of New York City's top thought leaders around education. We look to cover an assortment of topics while highlighting each individual. This podcast is generously supported by the Hive New York City Leadership Grant. On this episode, I'm joined by Christopher Lawrence, a great friend and colleague. Stay tuned for after the show for additional content. Hope you enjoy. Uh, well, thank you, Christopher, for joining us today. We're, we're really glad to, I'm personally glad to have you as, as one of our, our first guests for our Spark Chat podcast. And one of the first things I want to get into, um, especially considering that this podcast is really driven about tapping into people's passion, and especially with the work they do um, and working with youth, and also um, helping people get to know each other a little bit better from both uh, personal and professional experience um, and helping promote collaboration. I want to I want to hear a little bit about why do you love your job? Like what are some aspects of your work that you're you're really driven and passionate about? Good question there to start off, Anthony. Mm-hmm. Tough one. I'd say one what I've most appreciated about the work I do, have done in the past and will continue to do is the diversity uh, of the kind of work. So I, I care deeply about youth, I care deeply about education. And I also knew that I probably wasn't going to be the type that would be super comfortable in a classroom. Uh, I have immense amount of respect for classroom teachers. My father is a classroom teacher. Uh, I enjoy supporting classroom teachers. But I just knew that that kind of education was not going to be right for me as a practitioner and, and to dedicate my life towards. And so this kind of mix of informal learning, the excitement of how we learn with sort of in the digital age... Uh, and linking education to other sectors, activism, social justice, technology broadly, the kind of diversity of programs, of opportunities, of mix of people, that's probably the thing that has me the, the most excited. I've always been a bit of a, a bit of a interdisciplinary kind of bag of many tricks mm-hmm. type of person. So mm-hmm. that, kind of, that kind of variety is what drives me. Yeah, and I I always remember working with you and always being impressed with your ability to multitask. And, and um, you know, when we worked together, we um, we had a chance to work on a lot of different, uh, a really nice portfolio of projects under digital learning and your ability to really think things through and, and really be thoughtful about all, all that work um, was always so impressive to me. Uh, I want to take a step back and take a look uh, at the journey of Christopher Austin Lawrence, <laughs> and, and what was what was Chris Lawrence like as a kid? What were, how how were you growing up? Well, I was I was the eldest of three, so I always had a little bit of a junior adult type of mentality, and also a little bit of the first to do everything in my family, the first to get in trouble for stuff, the first to think <laughs> of things. So, I think I've always been a little bit of an adventurer, and a, adventurer and a pioneer on that front, sort of starting from my home life. I've also, ever since I can remember, just had a real multitude of interests and passions. I've always always been sort of driven by hobbies and stuff I'm into. Uh, That kind of stuff has always been the most important thing to me, whether it's music or pop culture or reading or whatever it is. I'm always having a ton of interests. Uh, I like to know things. I like to be into things. So kind of a rabid curiosity I think is probably the 
thing that's that's driven me the most. I also like to be highly opinionated, so mm. I like to uh, I like to have an opinion about many things. And and as I've grown older, I've realized that no one really cares what your opinion <laughs> is um, on many many things, and that, that you know that it's all subjective anyway. So yeah. I turn down the volume on on being obnoxiously opinionated, but I like being informed enough to have good opinions. So I think. That's how I was as a kid. Yeah. Um, I always wanted to rally other kids to do fun stuff, which yeah. they rarely wanted to do. One year, I I organized an entire neighborhood Olympics, and I think we got like two events in, yeah, and the entire awesome. neighborhood bailed. And I'm like, but we still have swing jumping and roller skating, <laughs> figure great. skating to go. And I have a whole whole routine to Van Halen's jump um, <laughs> that I've been working on for weeks, people. Um, or always thought, like, if we were going to play whatever, yeah. Cowboys and Indians, that you had to have the proper costume and, you know, yeah. no, you couldn't just run around in your jeans. So I've always been that type to, to rally people. And sometimes it worked and sometimes they're like, dude, you're annoying. It's it's tough being, like, the organizer, especially at that kind of young age. That's amazing. That's, like, really, really cool to, to know that about you. Um did you go to a lot of museums growing up, a lot of, like, different um, inst- cultural institutions? And, and if so, what was that experience like? So I actually did, and I think it's, it was pretty formative to my rest of my life. So I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C., in northern Virginia. And so we had the Smithsonian Institute for free in D.C. my entire life, especially young life. And, and we would take advantage of that, natural... You know, History Museum, American Museum of History, the zoos, the art museums. And, you know, I, I didn't even think you had to pay for any museum until I was a young adult. Like, went to my first <laughs> museum where you had to pay. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, you know, because they're free. They're a national institution. Yeah. So I went to those all the time. I remember, like, when MASH, the TV series, had been over for a couple of years and Smithsonian was having a big MASH exhibit. And like, awesome. I was down there, like, you know, day two or whatever to see that. So I was always in and out of those Smithsonians. We were such nerds that even, like, in high school where, you know, when we would take the Metro in or whatever and go, we, we would still go to the museums. Yeah. So um, that has always been a big cultural touchstone for me. And it was is that is that something that your it was more of a family experience or was that something that you know you were personally just interested in wanted to to go visit i think it started definitely as a family thing i mean yeah. it would be my parents that would would take us i don't know yeah. just because it was a free fun resource but my my dad is big into history and and we like cultural things as a family like that so i think that established it my grandfather uh, who had been basically lifetime military he also when he retired he ended up being the head curator and director of the National Guard Museum in Washington, mm. D.C. So there's a little bit of that sort of in the air, um, kind of in and around the family, you know, that sort of preservation, cultural interpretation, yeah. kind of those kind of things have always been always been prevalent. Awesome. What were, what were some of careers that you thought about getting into growing up? I'm sure... I can only imagine that there's a plethora of different things that the mind of Chris Lawrence was was thinking about exploring as a, as a child or as a teenager as well. Um, and so let's talk about that first. Yeah, I definitely wanted to do many things and still want to do many things. I'll never forget that in the sixth grade, I, I desperately wanted to be a professional hockey player. And my father was like, it usually helps not ice skate first. Um, so, so I was like, I... You make your dreams happen. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so I think we still have your hockey stick. It's somewhere. In yeah, my that's office. right. I did one Halloween here at Nice. I dressed uh, dress up as a hockey player. 
Um, so, yeah, it was always a bunch of different things. I think, actually, as I got older in high school, I, I got, and then even as a young adult, got less focus on actually what it was I wanted to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the funniest thing is that through most of my high school and college years, I, I wanted to tell people I wanted to be Dr. Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati. Okay, i got to look into that. Which was, <laughs> which he was a DJ, rock and roll DJ, which I did do, and uh-huh. all of my college years I was heavily into college radio, and I really thought I was going to be a DJ. It was a different time then. It actually had radio DJs, but... Um, and I was a music director, program director, ran my own FM radio station in a college. And I got, I was like, well, I just climbed the mountain. You know, I literally have run my own FM radio station, like, yeah. at 21. What am I <laughs> going to do? Go, you know, go back, work in Dubuque, you know, <laughs> work somewhere in the Midwest and right. play horrible music? Because I was like, <laughs> I scratched that off the list. I was like, I accomplished that by 21. So that was a little bit of a time in the wilderness. Um you know, and honestly, I just kind of wanted, this is going to sound so lame, but I just kind of wanted to live a rock and roll lifestyle. So I played in bands, I was a music journalist, I worked in record industry, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the next 10 years after college, I just sort of lived that lifestyle till you know, that ran its course. So um, that was kind of sort of the, what influenced me kind of growing up. If yeah. You count growing up till you're about 30. <laughs> we're, st- we're still growing up. Um, and so then when did you start transitioning to working in, in education? So it's a funny story. Maybe it's a little bit embarrassing, but I'll share That's it. That's okay. Right? Everything, anything for you, Negron. <laughs> Good content. So um, I'll never forget my then girlfriend, now wife, who I'll leave nameless to save her. Um, we were sitting at my parents' house, and, you know, typical mom stuff. Oh, well, are you thinking about marriage? Uh, what's yeah. going on? Next step, we'd been dating, I probably three, four years at that point. Gotcha. And uh, my wife looks right at my mom, looks over at my dad, and says, well, if your husband would, or if your son would ever consider being anything more than a record store clerk, maybe we could talk. <laughs> <laughs> so. Great. Uh, now, she, what she didn't, you know, she was not giving me respect for uh, actually being the first person in the East Village to sell stuff online, you know, so I will defend myself (laughs) there, but I said, oh, okay, and so I I definitely had to look at my life a little bit, and and the intersection of museums, culture, Mm. education, and technology, and building online communities was those were the things that interest me and mm-hmm. so I was like right, how can I advance this and actually make it a career and then starting Bank Street College and their and their museum ed department sort of kicked that part of my yeah. life off and and your are your parents were they involved in education my dad was a teacher and yeah. my mom was a dance teacher um, and teachers and educators sprinkled throughout both sides of my family so that was a that was definitely a strong pull um, and I was like even at the time I was like well Maybe I should go be a teacher. And even then, I was like, I don't know if I want to be mm. in a classroom that way. Right. Um, and so I actually, doing a bunch of research, when I discovered the, the Bank Street program, and it was right here in, in New York City, I kind of was I kind of was blown away. Now, my other big option was the um, Bowling Green University, which I believe is in, in western Ohio or eastern Kentucky or right around the border. I think it's eastern Kentucky has a great master's and doctor's degree on pop culture. 
Oh, wow. And if I hadn't uh, been attached and had a life here in New York City, I, I may have gone and, and done that and gotten my doctorate in pop cultural studies. Wow. Uh, which, who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll still do that. There's still but time. I know. So that was, that was the path not chosen there. Okay. Interesting. So I, w- I want to start transitioning a little bit into some of the the, the work you've done in, in education and digital education. Um, I know recently you had an amazing conversation um, with a friend and colleague of ours, Mark Lesser, uh, at, in his podcast, No Such Thing. Definitely uh, want our listeners to check it out. Um, really amazing uh, podcast hosted by Mark. And, and the topic of discussion was uh, about web literacy and the importance of web literacy and internet health. Um, and, and I do want to talk about that topic, but from the lens of program development and, and, and seeing if you can talk a little bit about any overlapping elements you've seen in programs or, or have heard about in programs that really do a successful job in in focusing on development of web literacy skills for you? There's so many, yeah. first of all. I mean, whether how they describe themselves, web literacy, digital literacy, digital mm. learning, educational technology, etc. I think there is so much amazing work happening in the United... Well, in New York City, in the United States, and actually globally. Um, it really has been amazing to see over the last 12 to 15 years how far programs, content providers, educational institutions, schools have come a long way doing this kind of work. So, and the thing that to me is the most important programmatic piece of advice that I'd give for any of these programs is start, is is, is good old-fashioned progressive education, but start with project-based work. Like, Mm. what what can the youth be making Mm -hmm. that actually matters in the world. And what is so exciting about digital tools, digital skills, the web, etc., is that you can actually make something and it be relevant, find an audience, get feedback in ways that when I was a kid, Anthony, even probably when you were a kid, you just couldn't interact with, right? Even right. if you did project-based learning and you did a nice project, teacher likes it, get a good grade, you know, maybe it's on display at the school, right. you know, your parents brag about it, whatever. Now, educators doing this work right, this stuff can affect the world. It can be shared thousands of times. It can it can be authentic. It is actually about authentic production for, for youth. And mm-hmm. so any program that starts... From that basis, now it's not like everything goes viral or it needs to or etc. But it feels real. If you make a video, it's the same equipment that you know basically people making movies and TV shows are using today. Right. If you're publishing to the web, you're publishing to the web, just like all kinds of professional content providers. Mm-hmm. It is so well. Heck, we're recording a podcast right now. Right. That, you know that you know. 15 years ago, we would have assumed it would only happen on NPR or whatever, mm-hmm. public radio. Yeah. And so that kind of giving youth and people broadly the kind of skills and distribution channels and opportunities to actually be in the conversation and use the tools around them and to create the media around them rather than just consume the media around them, Yeah. that's, that's the piece that drives me the most. And any program that holds that at its core I think is doing a lot right so and it's not just about that's where literacy has some limitations right because literacy is generally understood 
as you know, you being able to read something. Right. Um, one thing I think that is important about how we did frame web literacy is that it, you know, the read, yes, right? Critical understanding, knowing if you're being ripped off, knowing if something is a bad source, that's all important. But the it's also about write and participate. And so the right part is you can actually affect the digital world around you and it'd be just as legitimate as anybody else. Mm. And that it is actually, you know, how you actually participate. And having those three things in in tandem is super important. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's very exciting for, for, for a student, for a young person, and even for us, you know, knowing that, you know, today that I can, you know, these are things that I never thought growing up that I... I can do or or would have access to like these all these tools and, and knowing that these they exist and I can I can I can mess around with them I can tinker with them I can explore my own interests as an educator um, and as a learner myself definitely I would you know second that and that that really makes this all uh, exciting work to do and, and to be involved in I want to take a I want to talk a little bit about your role as a as a network builder and as a broker uh, between educators makers tech specialists administrators so many different uh, people people working in this field. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience being in that position and, and kind of making these connections between individuals? So here's here's an analogy I know that you'll you'll like, Anthony. So, you know, I've always felt like one of my superpowers is a little bit like Professor X. Sweet. Um, where, you know, when what was the, what's the thing called where he can kind of tap into all the mutant brains? Cerebro. Cerebro, thank you. Um <laughs> That I'm not saying I'm Professor X or have those kinds of powers, but the cerebro part of it always fascinated me, because you can act, you should be able to see the connections and mm. not you know it's always strange to me when people can't and it's actually I've it, it's taken me years to realize that more people can't than can, and I happen to be able to be able to I can access right. cerebro, and I enjoy connecting those dots, bringing people together building a narrative on top of what a lot of individual people are doing in terms of strong work, but that, that for whatever reason, isn't spreading and scaling or isn't connecting to others. Also, we just, we live in a networked world. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of emerging from this, this, communities are very insular, right? Like, they usually wanted to protect something, they usually had more similarities than they did dissimilarities. They were usually not isolated, but, you know, kind of bound by geographies or interest. You know, so the familial relationships, ethnic relationships, tribal relationships, these kind of community-based relationships. That, to me, is a just a... I mean, you probably get hate mail for this, but <laughs> that just seems like a dead-end street to me. Okay. The, the reality is that to exist in this world, you have to understand where your differences connect with others to build something bigger than any of yourselves. Mm. Whether that's yourself as an individual, whether yourself as institutions, whether it's yourself as organizations or or even ideas. And that's why networks are so strong. And people that understand how to leverage networks can understand where to plug their own weaknesses and strengths in with others to Mm -hmm. do some kind of collective impact. But that means you have to understand diversity. You have to understand that People are going to bring different perspectives and different skills. Right. Um, that that difference is actually difference is what actually strengthens the network. We're in a community. Actually, a sameness is what strengthens the community. 
Mm. And so I've always, a lot of my career over the last 10 years, and, and to be honest, it's been a struggle because most people feel more comfortable in communities. Right. Um, and they have a hard time making that jump to think about what network practice would be um, differently. And so I've, so that Cerebro aspect of it is always super exciting to me. I love, I'm not very good at many things like from a deep dive perspective. You know, I'm not, I'm not a coder. I'm not an amazing writer. You know, I can't pump out curriculum at high volume. Right. You know, I can do all those things okay. But like, but what I can do is I can actually synthesize things across a spectrum mm-hmm. and bring those together into a, a larger whole. Um, and that, to me, is the only way we're going to solve or address or even hope to kind of push back on some of the on some of the problems in society or in technology or in education or however you want to draw the circle. Yeah. It's going to take that kind of mentality for us to be successful. Some of this you already kind of tapped into with that, with that response. Can, can you talk a little bit about what do you think from your perspective a successful collaboration or partnership would look like between either two individuals or, 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 or different organizations? Because a lot of the work that we've, we've done before, either together or kind of separate, you know, there's definitely um, a lot of different people involved and kind of each playing different roles. And so can you, can you elaborate a little bit about what you think a, a successful collaboration partnership would look like? Well, one, you have to sort of embrace the fear. Hmm. Because, and you have to sort of embrace that there are be, will be, by definition, many things that, that you won't control, whether you control as an individual collaborator or as a represent, representative of an org in a collaboration, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like you are, this is not easy for human beings to do, right? You, you're giving up control. So right. there's a fear of not having control. There's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear about not having direct influence on what the outcomes will be. Um, so the first, that is a tough first ask, but it's the essential first ask in any collaboration. Hey, you know, we're going to go on a journey together. None of us can have singular control about what those outcomes will be or how this will turn out, by definition. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean you can't have roles and people taking leadership at different times and employing a racy and all this other kind of good stuff that helps people understand their contribution and role at any one time. Yeah. But you have to sort of embrace that that's going to be confusing, messy, a mysterious and have outcomes that maybe none of you even intended. Yeah. And so a lot of it is convincing people to sort of take that step. I found once they sort of accept that piece, then the organic and emergent pieces of the collaboration actually take on a life of their own and most people are happy. Mm-hmm. When it goes poorly is when people show up either as themselves or as representatives of an organization say, I'm representing this. A collaboration is not a, a legislative body, right? It's not a democracy. It's not like, it's not a negotiation. I mean, it has elements of those things, but that shouldn't be what's what's motivating the collaboration. The collaboration's goal is how are we better together, not how do I get mine over somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And I think most people enter collaboration more like their representative elective, either for their own ideas or their organization. Right, right. And so they go into it saying, I'm going to negotiate. I- I'm prepared to give up some stuff right. because that's negotiation. Yeah. But that's a whole different way to look at it. 
because mm-hmm. um, you're actually looking to see how much you can get, right? It, it is like, a, you know, how much, you know, who's got the largest pile of candy at the end? Who's got the largest funding? Who's got the largest, you know, DAP from the program? Or, yeah. you know, the totally. brands on the top. So I think that it's almost in that how people enter the collaboration that is going to is going to determine whether it's successful or not. Now, you can have lots of that kind of legislative one that it might hit the marks that they're supposed to hit and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. This can be successful, but they won't be surprising. They won't turn up new things. They won't, they won't be, they won't give birth to new ideas. Right. Like, like the ones where people actually understand that they have to sort of strip themselves down to, to get into the collaboration fully. I'm a collaboration hippie. (laughs) No, that's that's great. Yeah, you know, and just reflecting back on some of the work I've done and thinking about, you know, a partner that I feel um, we've collaborated very well. And I always I always revert back to my friends at the the Girl Scouts of Greater New York and and like doing like what you mentioned, really taking uh, a kind of leap together and kind of having some ideas of what this relationship could look like, but also being open, knowing that things, you know, will change and, 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 and adapting. And I think an adaption is, is really important. And, and how can you work together to kind of adjust um, somewhat on the fly or plan things out when, when unexpected things come up? And I, and I really value, I just value the, the employees there and I value are the relationships I have with them on professional and personal levels. So I'm really glad that you you talked to those points. That's a great, you know, you just added another one that I think is super important, and that is that invest in the relationships Mm -hmm. because that's the kind of resiliency that's going to lead to better collaborations, better outcomes, new ideas, et cetera. And I think a lot of people, that's another thing that a lot of people jump right over. And you have to invest in their relationships so that those can be strong, Mm -hmm. those can be elastic, and that those then will reconnect many times over even if individual projects and collaborations are done done successfully fail whatever you'll go back to those kind of relationships great yeah definitely um can you share uh a little bit about uh considering the kind of collection of work you've you've done and been involved with with your resume is so impressive to me and just knowing my my experience working with you um can you share a little bit about some of the challenges you face in kind of in the work you've done and, and kind of how you overcome them? You can you can focus on one thing, or if you're if you're able to kind of elaborate on a couple of different things. That's a good one. Um, well, one thing is sort of I'll connect to sort of earlier in our interview. I do get frustrated when I can't convince everyone to come along, and mm-hmm. I don't mean convince in like a cajole and con type of way. But, right. But. Yeah. And, and often I can, right? So <laughs> so that's a good thing. But it does get... Your way with words, though, has always been impressive to me. <laughs> I remember you talking to teachers um, about microorganisms. And some of the content you were saying, I knew were wrong. But I so believed in <laughs> everything that you said. And I was sold. I was ready to jump on board with well, you were whatever. You supposed to correct me. No, I, I, um, I was so impressed. <laughs> I can spin a yarn, um, but so I get I do it. It does get frustrating when I can't rely on that skill, which also means I over rely on that skill. Mm. Um, and so one thing that's been really important for me to learn is is to really have more of a super 
team approach. I don't think of myself as a really ego-driven person necessarily, but I can rely too heavy, heavily at times on my ability to convince people to come along on, mm-hmm. on, on a project, on a journey, with an idea, where drafting others to have different takes on those same goals, kind of going back to the collaboration idea, mm-hmm. has been the more successful path. So that's a lesson that's, you know... I learn over and over again, and quite frankly, when you start to climb the ladder of management, and then more and more people look to you to have that, and it's actually been sort of discomforting, you know, to have, you know, where I said, well, why aren't more people joining to to describe this or to make this successful or to communicate it to others? And people are like, well, dude, you're the boss. Right. Um, so that I'll admit that's been a bit of a a bit of a struggle. Um, the other thing I'll be honest with is a little bit more content over over kind of the emotional part is when when I started this journey around kind of being a, really excited by technology and its potential and the digital world and it was one of my deep interest levels and I kind of self-directed myself at Bank Street, you know, where no one gave a crap about technology at the time there and mm. thought it was weird. Um and I really was kind of a educational technology evangelist, right? I really, mm-hmm. I, I had that identity, um, and it was a sort of a utopian view of of what it can do. I mean, Anthony, you, you, we worked together in those days, you know. Right. Like, there's nothing we can't solve with you know doing it on the web or with technology. Yeah. Um, and it's been the last couple of years where we've really seen the dangers of that. Tracking, privacy and security issues, fake news, manipulation. We're now in this sort of almost digital dystopia. Mm. And both of them, I'm kind of at the point where both of those takes are really frustrating me. Like I'm, I'm frustrated by, which I was a part of, but the sort of blind optimism of the sort of digital utopia days. Right. And... I'm also is equally bummed at sort of the digital dystopia that now you know everyone's like you know turn it off screen time, the government's tracking us like all that and I know I've worked I know that a lot of that stuff is true and it was also true when the uplift part of it but the fact that we we vacillate between these two extremes without being more nuanced and thoughtful um, and becoming advocates for healthier use of these things so I feel like my career is sort of going into how do we become sensible um, and actually help people wrestle with the fact that these things are deeply embedded in their lives. I mean, think about, you know, people get married on the, not married on the web, but they find spouses on the web. That, right. You know, it. think about it out of your life right now, and it's it's almost unimaginable. Right. And it means that we're being exploited and manipulated at, at, at high volume. And mm-hmm. So we've got to have some pathways through that are sensible. And, you know, that's a lot what Internet Health is trying to say and think about as well. Um, but I really feel like I'm, I want to dedicate myself to the sort of more rationalized view that both rejects both the utopian and dystopian view of technology. And, and so just to kind of, as we kind of draw a little bit to, to an end uh, of this episode, um, can you share some advice uh, to an educator or, or someone looking to get into education or someone who's just been maybe involved in just a small amount of time? Uh, can you share any advice for, for an inspiring educator? Don't be trapped by your own circumstances. And what I mean by that is don't be trapped by the culture of your school or don't be trapped by the culture of your organization and don't even be trapped by 
your own content expertise or, or knowledge. Mm-hmm. The, the number one thing for educators that I would say is go experience the world, make connections and bring that back to your learners. One of the things that's been so rewarding around the Hive Learning Network and other network programs that you know I've been a part of or been have helped to lead or even experienced on this side as a as sort of on, as a member is that it opens up so many worlds of possibilities mm-hmm. for you, yes, but also for the kind of things that you bring back to to your learners, whether they're their adults or to their youth or or whatever varied programs that there are. And the best educators that I see in all kinds of different scenarios really are just avid and rabid consumers of the life around them, and they'll throw themselves into that. Right. Both because they understand that to be kind of the most curious and active person that they can be is what is going to best serve their learner. So that, that's my number one piece of advice. It's so easy to get caught in your own head, your own organization, your own content, your own school. Um, and that's where this sort of sameness and bitterness sets in. It doesn't mean you have to go get a bunch of different jobs. I just right. think, but you have, to, you have to be wanting to experience, experience things. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally agree. Um, well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, always enjoy uh, conversating with you and just getting a chance to catch up. Um, do you have any plugs you want to uh, share? Any special events coming up? Any uh, social media? I know you talked a little bit about your father-daughter podcast, um, which I advise everyone to, to, to listen to. Um, is there anything else you want to share? Uh, yeah, Larry's Pop Pod definitely would probably be number one. Um, also, It's Just Business it, on the Hogstyle Network is the, is, the, is the sports business one that, I, that I'm involved in. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at ChrisLarry33. Uh, you can follow the Larry's Pop Pod on Instagram at just the Larry's Pop Pod. So I think those are the ones that I'm most active in and most excited by. Awesome. Thank you again, Chris, for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. It was a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening, and please rate, review, and share the Spark Chat podcast. As always, I wish you all my best, and do stay tuned for additional content. Take care, everybody. All right. So now now we're going to transition a little bit into these kind of really somewhat out-of-the-box questions and just to tap a little bit more into the mind, um, the amazing mind of of my friend and colleague, uh, Chris Lawrence. Chris, can you tell me if there was a soundtrack of your life, um, and I'm sure this would be a multi-CD disc, um, numerous songs. Can can you name some of the songs that would be in that soundtrack and and talk a little bit about why those songs? Feel free to take some time to, to think about this. Yeah, I thought about it a little bit because you gave me the heads up. Um, so, I would say three songs right away that jump out to me. Um, all kind of the sort of the pre proto, what they call proto-punk era, <laughs> but MC5's Kick Out the Jams, because that has always been, you know, it's a kind of a call to arm song, you know, it's got the, you know, drop the F-bomb in the first two seconds, <laughs> it's kind of like, let's get at it, let's sort of, you know, 
pump you up. Yeah. Um, then Stooges uh, Search and Destroy and then Ramones Danny Says. So those are three of that kind of ilk that I, so you know the first two are kind of you know nail you to the wall get you pumped and you, and you'd think it's weird to say that the Ramones would be the come down out of those two but Danny <laughs> Says was a song they wrote about their manager so I always loved the kind of you know these lunkheads that have to sort of you know it's kind of a love letter to their their manager and so I yeah. always kind of see myself as the manager <laughs> in that song so um so those are three I would say um you know, there's a there's a song by kind of a, a bit of an obscure band from Memphis from the seventies, uh, called Big Star, but they have a song, Thank You Friends, which, you know, is so it's so beautiful. I mean the song is fine, it's a good song, but it's that the, right. the, the harmonies and the melodies aren't beautiful. Or that's not the part that makes it beautiful. Beautiful is that they actually just the honesty of the sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um and it is always to me, gratitude and appreciation are really important kind of ways to be in the world and so that song really really represents that to me um and then I have to say two more that kind of always are linked in my mind are Sonic Youth's Teenage Riot which to me as a teenager was just sort of summed it all up and then uh a band that was always kind of linked to Sonic Youth, although a totally different genre, was Public Enemy um, mm-hmm. and their song "Welcome to the Terror Dome." Uh, were sort of you know my my laid out adolescence rebellions rebellious songs, and so I'd say those five would be a would be a pretty good start. Um, but you know you got you're right you got to catch me at the right time. I can yeah. give you five other. <laughs> Different Completely. ones. I'd say that there's always music going in 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 the soundtrack to to, to my life, and I'm sure most people's. Yeah. Um, and it's been super fun actually getting into. This is going to be totally strange, but it's been super fun taking my critical lens to pop music. You know, with my daughter. You know, because you can't just be a snob, right? You can't that stuff. You know, why are you listening to that? <laughs> That's not the good stuff. And you know, I can do that. And we, I give her some things like, "Have you ever checked this out?" And we like it. But yeah. The, my funnest thing right now is like listening to pop radio with her. Now, I'll, I'll what I do is I'll say when something sucks, <laughs> but I'll also admit when it, it's a hot jam. Right. So she knows that. So she's not like I'm not like oh isn't this song good? I'll be like the song's garbage. Right. You're a moron if you like it, and here's why. <laughs> but like the next time I come on, I'm like okay, this one is just dropping That's, right in on us. Yeah. What is what are some hits? What are we what are we listening to? Oh man, <laughs> it's been a little bit bleak of late. Yeah. Um, I gotta say, I listened to the whole Pink record the other day. Okay. And did not enjoy it. Oh no. The the best song is the single. Oh okay. Um, so the the new Taylor Swift is boring as hell. Oh, it's actually, we're actually a little bit in a little bit of a lull here. I'm trying to think what is like a super hot jam. There really hasn't been a super hot jam lately. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, most of those uh, songs are usually summer summer hits. Yeah. Um. Cool. Yeah, that's that's that. I mean, I I'm I'm sure that this this soundtrack. I can't even imagine um, how many songs it would have. Uh, 
I, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, Remember when we built the Pandora station in our yes, office? Yes, yes. <laughs> what was that? From Gangstar to Lone Star, we called yeah. it? That was a classic. It, it was a, a collection of all genres, a celebration of, of music overall. Um, yeah. Which is totally fun because we were always like just trying to trick the algorithm. And, yeah. And then we asked someone like walking down the hall, like, "What would you pick?" And they le- yeah. laid a total stink bomb. <laughs> That's and, right. Like, I don't know if the algorithm ever. Yeah. Covered. Yeah. We got like viruses on our computers from <laughs> some of those songs. <laughs> I think that's why we have an IT department now. Um, yeah, no, that, those were those were great times. Can can you share a little bit about uh, maybe a skill or interest that most people don't know that that you have? Ooh boy. Um, well, I'm not very good at it, but I've been super into sewing lately. Wow. Uh, I I say that one of the this friend of of our family is this woman she's amazing she, she's a school teacher in Memphis, Tennessee and I, we've known the family forever and blah 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 but she, she's a school teacher by day but she's written two books on sewing I think it's called um, oh this is bad <laughs> so, uh, Sewing School 1 and 2 um, and they're fabulous books and her and her co-writer did a thing in July where it was Sew a Stuffy Month it was basically just making your own little stuffed animals. You cool. Know. And so we decided as a family to do celebrate Sew a Stuffy Month one night in the summer. And it was literally the one of the funnest things I did all summer. Uh, just being able to, like, sit down, talk, be kind of quiet, be working on something. I had another experience on a work trip this year. We were actually in Estonia, of all places, which was totally fascinating nice uh, sounds boring but it was not <laughs> and we did a night of, of a Nordic sewing with like some old ladies of the village it was amazing <laughs> I finished mine on the plane ride home and like people were probably looking at me like <laughs> I was so excited <laughs> um, awesome. so I, I suck at it but that has been something that I've been really uh, really enjoying lately Awesome. And, and I also know, and I definitely want to spend time talking about this. So you, you have a, a wonderful, uh, amazing father-daughter podcast. Um, can you talk a little bit about the podcast? Talk a little bit about kind of um, it, its genesis of, of kind of the idea? Where, how did it start? Um, and kind of where it's at right now? So I, I entered this year, 2017, with one of my, yeah, I'm not a big, I'm not a big uh, New Year's resolution type. Same here. But I did say, I did say I got to get off my tuchus and, you know, start to get into some passion things again. You know, just hobbies, interests. I, you know, spoke earlier about that's always been a big driver of me. And I right. Sort of felt overworked, and you know that work was just taking up too much of my intellectual time. Mm-hmm. Um. And then family, which I was had no complaints about taking up my time, but between the two things, there wasn't a lot of room. So I was like, you have to make room, right? You can't just go. There's no time. Right. So one of the things that I challenged myself on was to, this. This was the year I was gonna do podcasting, and like I wanted to do it for a long time. I mean, remember we were, you know, we ran a podcasting after school back in the yeah. day here at Nysai. So it's it's and I listened to him like crazy, and I was like, I I mean, I was in radio. Radio was one of my first passions. So I was like, this is the year I'm going to get into podcasting and start to do it. So, one, I join, I host a podcast with the Hogstye Network, which is a Washington football team-related fan podcast. Nice. And so I did a couple guest spots with them. 
And then they asked me to host their sports business show. So I've been doing that. And so that was one thing. It was like, you know, regular broadcast schedule every two weeks, blah, blah, blah. And then so I got that kind of broke the seal a little bit. And then I'd always wanted to do one where I was the, you know, we it was sort of my creative beast. And then I, you know, I was just talking to my daughter and I was like, you know, I have some ideas for some podcasts. Would you be interested in? And she had gotten into podcasts, strangely enough. She had listened to Where Is... People are going to think I'm a bad parent, but she had listened to uh, um, the one about Richard Simmons, Where's where what ha- whatever happened to Richard Simmons. Okay, or yeah, and like, yeah. And she loves the, the show Reply All, which is about the internet and whatnot. Right. Um, and so she, she was kind of a consumer of podcasts herself, so I'm like, we could do this. And so we just started to conceive of it, and... You know, the reality is she's not just turned nine. We have very similar interests. <laughs> so, um, so we have a lot to talk about in the yeah. world of pop culture because we, we were already doing and talking about these things. So I was like, why don't we just build this around it? Sure. And so we launched it, and it's gone. It's gone well. I think we're up to 16 episodes. We've wow. got over 1,200 downloads. So That's awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's it, it ends up being a lot of work, but the the discipline of it, I, I actually really like. And then, you know, to be honest, which is why I jumped to the chance to be on on your podcast, Anthony, <laughs> and and others. I really this is probably being on podcasts, doing podcasts, thinking about podcasts as a industry, thinking about podcasts as an educational tool, thinking about built, you know, kind of taking some of my network thinking to podcasts in general, really has, it's lit me up passionate, from a passion standpoint, right. like nothing I've been into in a long time. And so I think a lot of that was for those reasons, and a lot of it is just also doing it, you know, with my daughter and, and thinking of it. Oh, and then my wife is involved, so it's almost like a, a, a family, family business or family creative out, outlet. So having that kind of emotional connection to it and yeah. intellectual connection has me Really excited about this medium. That's awesome. And, and remind us again, what's the name of that podcast? Uh, it is called The Larry's Pop Pod. Uh, so, you know, for, for popular culture podcasts, basically. Right. Um, and you can, if you just search The Larry's Pop Pod on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, i got to get it up on Spotify. I haven't done that yet since they just introduced podcasts a couple months ago. Um, but you can find it. Just search The Larry's Pop Pod. Um, also love to get get submissions so we love to run other people's other people's remote uh, they sort of send in clips or send in segments so yeah cool. it's been a blast oh, that's great um, can you tell me and I'm actually really curious to know the answer for this uh, can you if you could be any superhero um, and you know I, I have uh, an affinity and love for for, for comic books um, and still do um, who would you be and why so I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a couple answers so one if I pick the, the two that I'd say I would go to, my two go to's are um, one I'd be Conan the Barbarian okay one of my favorite characters of all time as you know I can see that um I don't, I don't, I don't resemble his physique or his uh, battle prowess. Not yet, not yet, <laughs> <laughs> not ever. Um, but, but I do, I, I, but I would be him. I think he's like the great swashbuckling hero, adventurer, kind of of like good moral compass somewhere, but not driven by kind of a do-gooder attitude. Um, and then, 
my favorite comic book of all time is ElfQuest, and the mm-hmm. main character there is is Cutter, who the 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 creators of ElfQuest actually admitted that Conan the Barbarian was a big influence on on that character. Um, so those would be the two. Now they have traits. Both of these characters have traits that I don't even resemble at all. <laughs> so it's weird. Um, and even as I be, become an adult, I'm like, well, I probably would be like one of the weirder other characters, but I still <laughs> hold true to that. But the 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 comic book or the superhero character that I created when in college we played this long running Marvel superheroes role playing game. Yeah, was was the mole. Okay. Uh, and we were we it, the mole was part of an Avengers like super team called the Long Gone Commandos, mm-hmm. and the mole was short and stocky, so <laughs> more resembling my own physical appearance, and his superpower was the ability. To crack the earth, mm. burrow into it, and then squeeze it in on other people, uh, and so he just could sort of out of out of his like brute force and will, yeah. he could move the earth around him to do whatever needed to happen in a fight or just to, to save. <laughs> so I think my I'm probably uh, although being Cutter and Conan would be fun, and and I would you know is my idealized version. I'm I'm right. probably the mole. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and some of those characters I actually have to look into now. Um, cool, cool. Uh, and, and so just to kind of, as we kind of draw a little bit to, to an end uh, of this episode. I want to say thanks, Chris, again for your time. I uh, super appreciate it. And look to chat soon.